This is a Pivotal Conversations podcast. The reality is as you scale and as you become bigger, the expectations on you and the business become more. You don't have anyone pumping you up saying, you know, you got this or talking through the sort of challenges. I cut out all sugar, like all my chocolates were gone, all my lollies were gone, everything bad was gone. And about six months I'd lost about 25 kilos and I was feeling fantastic, looking really good, taking in your stride. Don't get flustered and overwhelmed. Like, no one's gonna die. Can you talk us through what that was like, you know, self-funding a project like this and maybe some things for others to watch out for? Yep. What it really means to live like golden. Yeah, we're golden, baby girl, we're golden. Yeah, about to see it shine, cause we're golden. They can't ever break us down, cause we're golden. They're about to see us glow, cause we're golden. Pivotal Conversations is focused on creating a seamless and convenient method for brands to create content in the modern age. We cover everything from strategy to production, to post-production editing, to create all your short form content, as well as social media strategy and your website strategy. So if you've been thinking about starting a podcast or you've got a podcast uh, and you're looking for a, a seamless, convenient uh, way for you to create your content and get it out there to the world, we are offering 50% off your first episode. So if that's something you're interested in, there'll be a link in the show notes, fill that inquiry format and we'll be in contact within 24 hours. Thanks guys. Daniel, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, great to be here. As I said to you pre-podcast, we were kind of having a chat. Um, my partner Olivia come to me one day, um, we were living in South Melbourne and she's come to me and gone, you've got to try these, you've got to try these. And um, I'm like, what are they? And she goes, Fun Day Sweets. And um, they were the little little frogs. Yep. Um, and the whole idea was, you know, they're, they're, they're a healthy version of, of lollies, you know? Um, and, and I think um, for me, I was like, at the beginning when she said, I was like, yeah, all right, whatever, like chuck us one. And then like, I put it in my mouth and I thought, wow, um, these are legit. Uh, and I was being hooked ever since. If I'm buying lollies, I'm buying them. I now see that they're in servos, which is, you know, yep. <laughs> great strategy from you, um, but even better for me because they are they are my go-to. Um, but that's, again, why I'm excited to chat to you about the journey. We'll talk a little bit about the startup story. Um, but again, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, I'm excited to chat. And um, just a note, my partner's Olivia too. And we've both got little girls, so there's a lot in common already. Yeah, wow, yep. yep. So for anyone who doesn't know, I haven't really talked about it on the pod, but um, I've got a baby girl now Olivia, uh, with my partner, Olivia. So we are we definitely have that in common. We do. And I'm guessing we both love sweets as well. Yes, we do. Lots <laughs> in common. <laughs> we might start with the startup story. So yep. tell me how it started, why it started, yep. you know, and, and give me that startup story. Yeah, for sure. Um, it's probably more a reason around why. Um, I think I've always um, been sort of on the larger side, sort of a, definitely a big kid. Um, I definitely just recall going through sort of primary school and high school, always feeling a bit sort of self-conscious and definitely being more on the sort of the tail end and on the, on the bigger side. And that always, I was generally really good and I had still had a great sort of fun personality and was really had lots of friends, but it was still this underlying like itch that I was always bigger and I'd try to do things and it just wouldn't really work that much. The problem was that I just loved eating lollies. I loved eating chocolates like any kid. Mm. Um, and I think it was probably uh, finished school 2005, so the year after that, uh, we all started going out, nights, Saturday nights, whatever, during the week we were at uni. 
And I think the need just to feel good and like just look better became more of a priority for me as I sort of matured and sort of went through that whole process through my like by myself and not having my parents sort of try help me or sort of like I'm an adult now I've got to sort of look after myself and I cut out all sugar like all my chocolates were gone all my lollies were gone everything bad was gone uh, and I started just running like three or four times a week and about six months I'd lost about 25 kilos and I was feeling fantastic looking really good um, the problem was I still wasn't eating any of the things that I really enjoyed and then I found that there were a couple sugar-free options in the market to fill that confectionery desire. Uh, the issue with it for me was that they all filled with things called sugar alcohols. Like most people know maltitol or sorbitol. They're the little um, warning on the packets to say excess consumption may cause or may have a laxative effect. And for me, that was really true. I'd have like one or two lollies and just feel like horrendously ill. Um, and that was my life. Like I would go and eat either a few... Um, full sugar lollies and then feel really guilty because it was like super sugary and my teeth would get all like furry, you know, mm. like when you drink soft drinks um, or I'd go and have sugar free and feel really sick. So my options were really limited. I was sort of between a rock and a hard place. Um, I think then that sort of was an underlying sort of theme for a very long time. In that sort of time frame, I'd finished uni. I got a job in Perth actually and um, moved to Melbourne, started working for a company called Luxury Escapes and now pretty much everyone knows, but this was when they first started and got to know the whole world of tech and systems and emails and SMS and website flows and customer experience and all this sort of stuff. And it was a really interesting time professionally. Um, after about four or five years, I got uh, a knock on the door to come work with someone to set up a vitamin and supplement company. And for me, I, I took that opportunity because it was a challenge, a space that I was really keen about this whole wellness space, but I didn't really know anything about mm -hmm. it. I started working there for a couple of years and developed a range of vitamins and supplements that we sold to Coles and Chemist Warehouse. So sort of by that point, I'd had some experience with tech, now sort of the wellness side of FMCG. Um, and then I spent another year working for the largest vitamin and supplement company globally. Um, and. The issue for me is while all of that was sort of taking place, I was still not eating any confectionery, any lollies. So this is an underlying theme throughout the whole time. The difference now is that I'd had experience in business. I'd spent years doing random jobs at Luxury Escapes because they were scaling from, I think it was like staff number 30 and by the time I left, it was like 400. So it was like, whatever you want to do, if you really were good at it and keen to give it a crack, we gave it a crack. So I had so much crazy experience there and then at the vitamin space, got exposure to that sort of area. When I was at the um, job before starting Funday, I took a weekend off. I was getting paid excellently, wasn't really that happy. I took a weekend off and decided to go explore. And I knew that I wanted to get involved in this health and wellness space. I didn't know what. I thought it could have been confectionery, it could have been health food, it could have been a vitamin, it could have been a supplement. But I knew the area of health food in general was something I really was keen to pursue. And the reason um, that I sort of had to go overseas was because at the time you could go on Google and you could try find products, but you never really knew what was in the marketplace. You never knew what looked good. You never knew what tasted good. And so I took this three days off. I flew to LA and I flew to London and I spent a night in each place and I spent the rest of the time sort of in transit and traveling, I sort of situated myself uh, in LA 
uh, sort of use Google Maps and said like, where are the top stores, Whole Foods, Kroger, CVS, wherever it might be, all the supplement stores, and sort of just within like a 1K radius, just walked around like crazy person, buying all this sort of stuff and filling up suitcases. Um, it was there in the US that I found a really similar product that was that had disrupted the confectionery market, particularly in gummy lollies. Um, started by a really young female founder, and she'd created in three years a $100 million US business. Wow. And I was like, less about the financial side, the product tasted excellent at the time. Mm. Um, it's since sort of not been at the same quality, but at the time it was excellent. And for me, it was realization that, hey, you can actually have a confectionery that's really low sugar, really good for you, it's got prebiotic fiber, but not have any of those nasty sugar alcohols. And I think, I then went to London, try to sort of find some inspiration, never really found anything there. And then I came back and I shared it with my wife and I was like, this product is excellent. You know, it doesn't, it only exists there. It doesn't exist anywhere else in the world. Um, I'm entrepreneurial by just spirit. I've now got experience in these in tech and I've got experience in retail. I think it's time for me to give it a crack by myself. And within a couple of days of coming back from LA, I'd quit my job, um, started, working on formulations at home, got like a gummy mold. Um, I mean, one quick story was that we were on honeymoon in uh, South America, um, just as I'd quit, I'd quit and then we went away. And I was like emailing ingredient suppliers from like Canada and America, like while I was away, so that when I came back, the ingredients would sort of be there. So it was sort of just like a natural sort of thing for me. And um, yeah, it sort of got to the point of being pretty happy at home with the formulations and decided that I needed to hire a food tech and a food scientist to sort of help curate this recipe. It'd never been done before outside mm. of the small part in America. And you don't know what you don't know. None of the manufacturers here knew what the hell I was talking about. They didn't even know half the ingredients that I was talking about. They didn't even know it was possible. And um, yeah, it got to a point that was really great and really happy and tasted like the normal lolly or better than a normal lolly. And yeah, I guess from then on, I had the confidence that the product was excellent, but I needed to go find manufacturers and sort of create a, a, a bit of a business essentially out of it. And so, yeah, I think it was that point in uh, probably early 2020 that the formulation was good and then I could start the rest of the journey starting the business. Yeah, it's a pretty wild journey. I think like, you know, uh, what, I, what I would be really interested to kind of dive into next is, um, I think like I look at look at that story and say there's kind of two parts. There's the part where there's an idea and, and then it's like I need to test this idea. I need to see if this is actually possible. Yeah. Um, what was so what prepared you for that moment where you were like, okay, I'm quitting my job? Because I feel like that is such a big decision that a lot of people in business have to go through at some point. Yeah. And I'd love to tap into was it was it like right time, right place? As in you were in a position to be able to do this? Was it more like a, no, I've, I've just got to do this. Like a, this is more like a, I've, I'm feeling this kind of pull yep. towards this this journey. I was a bit, probably a bit of both. I felt um, professionally by that point, I'd had enough experience in a number of industries. And I think, you know, at the time working say luxury escapes, whether I started off in customer service, literally like, on the phone to people that were having, it was early days, you had to prove luxury escapes was a really genuine business and you went somewhere offshore or something like that. It was yeah. really funny. Um, but working through from the ground up in a startup business to the extent when I finished, I was running a couple of their businesses. 
the amount of learning that I got from that experience, just understanding how business worked, and then moving on to into retail, understanding how the buyers worked, what the retail schedules were like, what the packaging format has to be, what barcodes are. So I sort of got to this point where I was like, I feel quite prepared, um, still nervous because I'd never done it by myself and it always been someone else to get involved in the process and sort of share the risk with, I suppose. And at the same time, I knew deep down that I wanted to run a business. For many years while working at these places, I was like, damn, I just want to run a business. But I don't know what it is. And I'd go and meet with um, a number of mentors and friends and be like, oh, I just, do you have a business for me? Or like, do you have an idea? Like I was so keen, but just couldn't come up with something. And when I saw these products and I knew that it was possible, it sort of just culminated in like, okay, I'm ready. There's an idea that I know is achievable and I'm gonna go all guns out and give this a red hot crack. The benefit was that at the time when I was working at this really big vitamin supplement company, I was pretty unhappy. Um, you know, the boss that I had was based in um, China, didn't speak any word of English, had to translate um, everything. And so it was just like a gruelling day to day. The, the money was excellent, better than I'd ever been on before by country mile. So there was always some lure financially, but after a while, the money didn't really mean anything and I wasn't really getting satisfaction out of my job. So it was a perfect storm in terms of like, I wasn't really truly happy there. I felt ready and I'd seen the size of the prize in the market that I knew that if I could tap into, it would just be an excellent business. And there was nothing in Australia like that. Is that, that's the, nothing. and I think that's an important point as well. Like that's something that, I mean, I'm pretty lucky I get to interview and, you know, a lot of amazing business owners, but that's the common theme is like, you don't want to get stuck in creating a business in a, either a declining market or a market that's just, they're already being served. And, yep. and I think like that idea of finding the gap in the market and, yep. and like, you know, I guess that would have been a bit of a pull for you to get into the space as well. Yep. And I think as part of that, there's always this underlying sort of motivation to be first to market. And like, if I'm finding it now, someone else is going to find the opportunity in six months or 12 months and being second or third or fourth is work. not that great no. um, and it makes your job a million times harder so I was like I'm all in or nothing and I'm very much like that in general um, and I think in this case it was really good because and like you said I knew a lot of people that created businesses that were just sort of slight amendments on existing models some of them had done really well and it's not such a bad strategy to come in second tier and get the benefits of the learnings of the first business or whatever um, but for me, I knew because the market of confectionery is so big, you know, the penetration for confectionery is like 70, 75%, mm. which means like seven and a half out of every 10 Australians eat confectionery. Um, and the trends were going in the way of health and reduced sugar and more natural. It just felt like the right moment and so the right timing to jump into it. Yeah, and like you only need a corner of the market to start. And I think that's the, another big learning for me is like yep. pick your corner. Yep own that corner and then you know you can expand into the yeah. rest of the, the market as well which is 100%. where you're talking about that penetration element yep self-funded yep so uh, the whole way through or the is whole it, way through wow yeah can you give us some insight into or the psychology that you have to have in the early days around building a great product because it can be really easy to overspend yep to to go you know too far in the early days to prove the product yep can you talk us through what that was like, you know, self-funding a project like this and 
how you know some things you think you did really well and maybe some things for others to watch out for yep 100 percent. it's incredibly tough i think the reality is that i moved from a business that was paying me really well and really essentially had no risk to having zero like the next day um and that's really challenging and that's really can be really stressful you know it's funny because my wife's um now a gp but for the last 10 years, you know, she did biomedical science and nursing to do everything she could to get into medicine. But it meant for almost the entire time, she wasn't really making any money. So I was sort of paying all the bills. I was doing everything. And then by that point in time, she had become like an intern at one of the hospitals earning really rubbish money. But like, it meant that I could have some safety net. And so like, at least the rent would be, the mortgage would be paid and all this sort of stuff. Um, but, you know, the reality is I set up a consulting business when I started Funday because I needed extra income to pay for the bills. I needed to pay for the food scientists. I needed to pay for the food tech. I needed to pay for the lab testings. You know, like we were spending $1,000 on testing for fibre in a product and having to send it to um, somewhere in Europe. And then, you know, the ingredients companies were like, who's this small timer guy? Like, I'll send him some raw materials, but he's gonna have to pay for the shipping. You know, it doesn't happen now, but that's what used to happen. So you need a couple thousand bucks a month to really see this thing through. And I was like, if I'll just set up a consulting business called, I think DMK Consulting, it's, I'm pretty sure it's still an active website. Um, I will tailor some of my like skills and try and make some money consulting. So I teamed up with about five or six different businesses that had networks with all the big consulting companies or um, other professional services. And they were looking at setting up a vitamin brand in China or setting up a vitamin brand in Australia or US and want to talk about trends and wellness and stuff. They would call on me and pay me like a stupidly big hourly rate because they're paying for your skills. And a lot of people that could give that advice are working for an existing business and have a conflict of interest to help someone else. So I was in a really unique position and that's sort of how I kept funding the business. Um, but in terms of like product innovation, it was just like, it's a very stressful time. You wanna make sure that the product tastes as good as regular confectionery or better, because you can go through all of this process of development and then you get to a point where the product's not that great. Mm. And then you spend all this time, you've launched into market, heaps of risk, heaps of money, and no one buys the product or they buy it once and never buy it again. So, you know, we I was my own worst enemy as well. Like I would taste test everything and get people around me to try everything and just be incredibly critical. It turns out to be a really good strategy because um, you know that by the end product, that's you're gonna get something excellent. Whereas even now we taste test things and while we could launch and know we could be relatively successful, it doesn't stick to our core value of offering a product that's as good as a regular product or better. And it's certainly not nostalgic and that's part of the, the premise of the business. In terms of what we didn't, or I didn't really do very well, um, probably a lot uh, in, in all fairness. Like I think um, it was also uncharted times because I'd launched, um, started working on the formulations and then COVID hit mm. and probably made a number of mistakes in terms of even forecasting for like the first orders and under forecasted what we needed. So I had to air freight the first load of stock for say a chemist warehouse launch in the early days. And then they sold out in six weeks. And then I literally had a bill of like a hundred grand to make sure that stock came the next week. So it was on shelf. So, you know, like just being more prepared, probably being a bit more aggressive in the forecasting and thinking about what you're going to do is really critical. 
tell me about the go-to-market strategy, right? Because yeah. I find that really interesting. This is probably an area where you know you're um, a D two C business, right? So you're kind of thinking about how do I get my product in front of consumers? Yeah. What's that like? You know, like, and what is that? What does that process actually look like? Are you kind of is it like classic in the DMs, like getting on LinkedIn, Sales Navigator, emails, and just trying to book in meetings with some of these, you know, big big companies? You know, um, I did read that. You know, one of the early strategies was pharmacy led. Yep. You know, tell us about that go to market strategy yep. and what can people learn from that. Yeah. Um, you know, it might not ever happen again. This whole COVID business, but certainly was for me at the time, literally within months of starting the business. Um, so. We, I'd always, because I had that sort of tech, tech background, I was adamant that we needed to have a D2C. No other confectionery player in Australia in early 2021 had any D2C. Like there wasn't one lolly brand, no one chocolate brand, not doing anything. And I saw really great examples in Europe and in the US and I was like, there is no reason why we cannot have a really successful D2C brand. And from the outset, myself and the graphic designer built our whole website. We did a thing, you can imagine startup, like you don't have budgets to go to an agency and make websites. So we did it ourselves. And to be honest, the website that's on live today is still the existing website with some modifications. And we're certainly in the process of making some amendments, but that was always a critical thing. And I think um, we needed to own that customer data. We needed to know what they were buying. We needed to be able to contact customers. What if they liked something or didn't like something? We needed that really quick feedback cycle. And so that was really critical. The other thing, my plan initially was to make this product available just everywhere in Australia. Like if you see a competing confectionery brand, they're everywhere from the post office and the gym to the supermarkets and majors. Mm. So I had the same idea. Um, the problem is you also need to understand, get some data from your own D2C store to see what's working, what's not. In terms of the route to market from a, like an offline presence, I, because I was quite involved with the launch of a number of vitamins and supplements at Chemist Warehouse, I understood the model. I knew not the right person to speak to, but I knew of people to speak to. And I said, um, initially the conversations were like, if I could bring you this product in a hypothetical sense, would it be of interest? Because I was sort of mitigating my risk by saying, like, I'm not going to go and invest thousands, tens of thousands to developing a product, but you're not actually strategically looking for this product. So the first thing I did was said like, is this something that you'd actually care about? Like your customers would like. And they said, yeah, if you can bring it to us, great. Um, and so what I would do is I've had that contact and would set up periodic meetings probably every six weeks and say, this is our new round of samples. Like you can try everything, it can be bad and good. And we sort of got to a point where they sort of like helped us refine, um, I'd say the product in a way to make sure it was product market fit. Mm. and. After that period, they were like, this is great. We're happy with it. Um, and you know, they committed to an order to put in all their, their 500 stores. The problem with confectionery, particularly gummies, is that the minimum order quantities are incredibly high. Like you're talking for one product could be 5,000 kilos. Uh, for us, it's 100,000 bags per product and we launched with four. So for us to go into a manufacturer, you've got 400,000 packets that A, you've got to pay for, but B, you don't know if they're gonna sell. So um, having a key customer like that to underwrite your, my order with a manufacturer is really imperative to making sure that I wasn't taking a stupid risk in this business. And so, um, you know, interesting sort of like snippet, but while I was setting up this consulting business, um, I was working with someone 
who thought they had an agreement with one of the majors. Um, it was an oral sort of conversation that they had or a verbal conversation. And they went and produced, I think about 30 or 40,000 units of tubs of supplements and things like that and came to me and said, like, you know, some people in the industry, like, can you help us find a way to sell this, this product? Um, because the buyers sort of just like reneged on the deal or I don't know exactly know the specifics, but basically they weren't gonna buy it. And I found them someone who paid, you know, like 20%, they probably lost quite a bit of money on it, but at least they got some money back and got rid of the stock. But that was for me like the critical piece of it. I didn't want to be in that position and waited until I sort of had like an official order before I went and did it. And sort of just try to mitigate the risk because the stakes were getting pretty high. Um, the other thing, just back to the D2C model, is you can go into retail and you can secure one customer and they can take a shitload of volume and they can be 80% of your business. If they decide next week Cancel, that yeah. you're out, then you're out, what are you gonna do? So D2C was also a way to mitigate risk against going into offline retail. And now I know really confidently after two and a half years of being online, if I go and buy a product and I get binned by a retailer for whatever reason, I know that I can sell it. You know, we've got tens of thousands of people that are signed up to Funday that have downloaded an app that have regularly subscribing to us. And I know that we can offload product if in the worst case scenario. Um, and so that sort of, that was the philosophy of setting up D2C, but also having the vision for the offline channel. Chemist Warehouse was the critical go-to-market offline piece for us to allow us to order those minimum order quantities. From then on, it was a cascading effect because at the time, everyone was not really going to groceries anymore. They were doing, you know, Woolies online, Coles online, because no one wanted, particularly in Victoria, mm. like no one was going out, everyone felt a bit scared. So, but pharmacy was open slather, like everyone was walking for a rat test or like whatever it might've been. So being there at the pivotal time in that channel was a really critical piece of the channel strategy. So we went into pharmacy at the beginning when everyone was going. By October of 2021, we're in Woolies. And it was the time in which people were now going back slightly to their regular routine. And then in, I think, March of 2022, people started driving again because you could go out. And then we launched into Ampol. And then we sort of followed where customers were going. Otherwise, we were putting product into a retailer or a channel and literally was just going to sit on the shelf. Mm. So sort of just having a bit of foresight as well to see where you think things are going to go for a channel. And channel strategy was in our business plan from day dot in terms of like who we wanted to be at, when we wanted to be there, the cascading effect of going larger retailers first to make it simple because you can deliver the biggest amount of stock to one DC or you can deliver a really small amount of stock to a small distributor and have to deliver it to like 10 different places. And then it's like, we're only a small amount of people. And then it's just a question about the risk and return. So there's a few things there that I wanted to, to kind of highlight, but one of the first ones was around, obviously, was the pharmacy strategy purposeful because of COVID? So you mentioned that it worked well, but was that something that you said initially, like, hey, there's a big opportunity here and that's what you're talking about in regards to channel strategy? Yeah, um, a couple of things. One is that uh, at the time, uh, and still to an extent, a lot of the sugar-free options in the market were selling, they're called pharmacy lollies. Like people know chemist lollies, <laughs> pharmacy lollies. That's where people picked up their stuff. So for us, Kemp, like pharmacies was a really good entry point into that. Um, even more highlighted by the fact that people were going in there 
and also the fact that I'd worked in that environment before and I knew of people that could try to help me connect with people. Mm. Um, all of those three things intertwine completely to make us be 100% adamant on going through pharmacy at the beginning. Um, and it was just like a natural, sort of almost like a, like a gateway, like it was forcing me sort of through that because it was the easiest route to market where people were and people were already shopping for similar adjacent products. So it just made sense. Like even today outside of Funday, you've got a, other PNC, like Ampol's, Coles Express, whatever, you won't see a sugar-free lolly. So to go and put something in there in the early days when no one knew about it wouldn't really make that much sense. Because mm, people aren't looking. They're just it. not looking. You want to yeah. be in the space that people are trained to look, otherwise you're shifting the paradigm completely which is fine, but you're also reinventing a product. There's too many things for people to re to consider. It's like new channel, new products, um, new price point, <laughs> um, because we are a premium product with premium ingredients. That's probably quite a lot for someone to then look at the packet, pick it up, turn it around. We knew that was happening in pharmacy. People often go and read the labels of things in a pharmacy, and they do that in supermarkets to an extent too. And so that's where we wanted to play. So interesting, like that it's just a different psychology, right? Based on the distribution yep. or where you're putting your product and like, you know, like the difference between someone buying lollies in say a Coles compared to a pharmacy and yep. how that, that just plays such a big role into your, your go-to-market strategy. And I think that's the depth. If you think about like anyone who has any type of success in a launch, which it's very, it is rare, yep. um, you kind of bring it back to that understanding the, having a deep understanding of the problem, yep. the psychology of the customer, and then, you know, putting, it's almost like, what's the easiest way that I can get product market fit or I can sell X amount, which is a representation of product market Absolutely. fit. Team, just a short break. I want to say a massive shout out to our major sponsors, BizCover. They are a big reason why we get to do what we do every single week. These guys are professionals, they care about your business and they care about the business and startup community, which is something that I really love and a reason why we chose to partner with them. And plus they make the process of getting your company insured super seamless, which is really important with such a tedious process. I've been a customer now for 10 years. I have made claims, it has been super easy. Uh, and it, you know, with as I said, with such a tedious process, uh, these guys are the best in the business. As part of the Startup Diaries community, uh, they have given us a promo code, which is Pivotal25, getting $25 off your business insurance policy. Make sure you head over to bizcover.com.au. The link is in the show notes. Get your company insured with a great company. We'll head back to the episode now. The other thing that I liked and I think is something that a lot of companies are doing a lot more of now is you mentioned the risk of say, you know, having the conversation with your distribution channels before making the order. Yep. And like the idea of that's definitely a possibility yep. more so now than ever. Um, rather, Cause your other option is you have to go raise money. Right. Yep. And so for you, you're kind of looking at low risk, yep. low risk, low risk, low risk, high return. And yep. kind of, I don't know if you've read um, Taleb's book, Nicholas Taleb. No. Um, I forgot what it's called now, but it basically talks about the idea of what's the decision that you can make that has the most upside, but the you know minimal downside or the least amount of downside. And yep. I kind of bring that back to yep. what you're, you know, as you're talking, I'm kind of bringing it back to that principle of like making decisions that way. Yep. I think so. I think the thing that no one really talks about setting up a business, particularly of this scale, where you've got to go send hundreds of thousands of dollars to a manufacturer, is that 
you work with banks and you've got a mortgage potentially and the repercussions of things not working out are really significant. Um, for example, if Funday tanks tomorrow, then like my house is the max. Um, there's that sort of underlying stuff that no one sees, only the founder. And that sort of, um, call it stress or risk, comes into a lot of the decision making in terms of, um, I'm not playing with someone else's money, I'm playing with my own. Um, and I need to make sure that every dollar that I spend is going to good use. So I'm not going to go and waste 10 grand on a excellent like prototype or something. I'll just send it in a PowerPoint and show, is this something that's of interest? I love that. I want to go back to that point. What's your, what is your opinion on, you just mentioned it, right? And it's something that is an absolute reality. And there's, you hear many different views of the idea that the situation of the founder and you know you're talking about mortgage you're talking about all these things i know that a lot of founders because i know i've i've had this very argument with myself in my head right around is there i'm trying to think about the right way to say this the idea of building a business, what some would say is the right way, which is, you know, you should have yourself set up to a point where those clouds aren't clouding your decision-making or going the opposite way and looking after yourself first and making decisions that way in the early days. Where, where do you sit in that camp or is it dynamic to you? Like the idea that, no, I shouldn't, you know, like I, I, I shouldn't be making these you know, selfish bias decisions to keep myself safe. Yep. And I should be building the, putting the business first versus no, you know, I need, a, I need to make these selfish decisions in the early days. Yeah. Cause I know that's a tussle that every founder has. Yeah. I think it's, it's an incredibly tough question. I don't know if there's a right answer. I think it probably to an extent is dynamic. Um, I think in principle, if the person running the business, making all the decisions for the outcomes of the business, is stressed, worried, anxious all the time, that will reflect in the decision-making process. Um, so that's not necessarily a good thing. That can limit growth, that can limit, limit opportunities. Um, I would say, as a founder, you have to dissociate a lot of the time from what's personally happening, happening in your personal life and focus on the outcomes of the business. Um, you know, there are times even in a business where um, you might make a short-term um, decision to um, buy something at an increased cost, knowing that it will future-proof the business or you can test the concept. And once you get the volume or you get the deal or get the contract, that will reduce in time. So, you know, if you had to take this approach that every decision needs to be profitable, it needs to be absolutely perfect from day one, I don't necessarily think that is the way to build long-term a long-term business. In some scenarios, it might be if you've got heaps of capital and you can go and risk it, you might lose some, but you might get the like instant upside. But for me, I've always had to balance that personal thing. And it's been like, well, you know, maybe I'll break even on this particular arrangement or this particular contract um, because I know that by ordering too much more, um, I'm putting my own personal finances at risk and I'm putting the business at risk as well. I think it's just about mitigating as much as possible, not clouding too much judgment. Um, I often think, you know, if I did this whole exercise again and went back three years and started doing it, what would I do differently? Um, and it's funny, I sort of get to the point of, I probably, from the initial stages of the setup, the way that I went around trying to get into the retailers, setting up things, 
I wouldn't change that much. You know, it was real hands-on, get your hands dirty, build a website, build your own presentations, go to the retailers, put, you know, give them samples out of the factory in a shitty jar and pack it, you know, because that was the reality of what was going on. Um, so I think, you know, I, I really do think it's, you need to dissociate yourself a lot of times as a founder. Like, you know, even to the extent where I can go into work any day, personally, I could be stressed, whether it's financial or family, or I didn't sleep because my daughter's been up all night, but you've got people and decisions that are relying on you to make really solid decisions. And I think one of the strengths that a founder can carry is that they can sort of decomp um, decompartmentalize. That's the one. Um, a lot of the things that are going on in their day, in their personal life or in their business life. And I think that makes room for a really solid founder or person running a business. Yeah, it is definitely, I think, one of the toughest parts of business, you know, is, yep. and owning a business and being a founder is, it's such a dynamic and emotional uh, journey that you go on and you more often than not wear your heart on your sleeve as a founder. Yep. And one of the biggest lessons you have to learn, in my opinion, is, you know, you, especially now that, you know, even for me, is I can't take my stress home with me now. Yep. You know, and I probably shouldn't have been any at, at any point, but it's like, it is one of those things yep. um, that I think, you know, over time and I, I, you know, I do think it's important to have your own nest in order, right? And, and that will lead to a better, um, oh, you know, better decision-making as you mentioned. Yep. What's been the toughest thing about your journey as a founder? You know, because we've talked about a lot of success here. Like, what's been the toughest thing for you on this journey? That, um, it, you know, maybe that you think people can learn from. Um, there's probably two things. One is they say, you know, the most successful businesses typically two founders. Um, and I think there's a lot of merit to that. Um, I think more than two, I can't speak from experience, but I feel like would maybe start to cloud the decision-making process and maybe slow it down and maybe not make it as efficient. Two, I think is a really good number because it allows people to bounce ideas off, particularly if you're partnering with the right person who can challenge your beliefs. In most cases, I've seen founders completely different personality types. And I think for the purpose of running a business, often that is a really great thing. Hmm. Um, you don't need to be best mates outside of work. Often they become really close anyway. For me, probably the biggest challenge has been writing solo from day dot because you need to be motivated all the time. You don't have anyone pumping you up saying, you know, you got this or talking through the sort of challenges. Um, I, th I think even in the good times, even in the bad times, you don't have that like really solid person who's been through everything to sort of like celebrate with, cry with, whatever you wanna, whatever emotion you're going through. That's been definitely been a challenge. The upside obviously is that I can retain full control of decision-making, financial outcomes, all that sort of stuff go to me. Um, you know, if there was an excellent partner for me at the time, I would have absolutely jumped on it, but it just wasn't, right? Um, and then I think the other challenge is always financial. Um, in my case, we've bootstrapped the business and you're always thinking about um, how to best optimise funds, where they go first, um, can I go invest this much in marketing? Because I don't really know the outcome of it. I think it's going to result in more sales, but you know, should we give it a crack or not? Um, whereas a lot of businesses that have got funding from external sources, might be like, cool, I've got money in the bank reserved for this mm. and I'm just going to go and give it a crack. It might not work out, but maybe it will. So there's no day that there's no financial stress or no financial pressure. 
the I've been really um, stubborn on the fact that for me it makes sense for me to go at a solo, take all the risk but take all the reward and make the decisions that I see fit. And it's allowed for a super agile, nimble business model where if you know customers are demanding a product, there's not like a 53 gate step to how to create a product or how to go to market. We just start the development process, we make it bloody taste excellent, and then we speak to the retailers and we go and launch the product. You know, it can be three months, not 18 months or 24 months to release a product. So that's definitely worked to our favor. So I think just having access to cash, um, wherever it might be, whether it's the three Fs or if it's through other external funding, having knowledge that you've got financial backing in some way when you start a business is really important. Um, and then I think it's just finding, even if it's not a founder, just finding good people to go and talk to. You know, I speak to a couple of people every month, you know, I've set up board meetings every month. I don't have, like, I don't need to, but I've done it from, to keep myself accountable and motivated to say, well, every month I need to report on financials, management, operations. I love that. And I need to show that I've actually done something in between the last time we met and this month, because if I don't, I probably just get a bit relaxed. I'll probably not focus on this. Mm. And at least we've got a structure in place for the last couple of years that keeps me accountable. And so a lot of that is just completely knowing your strengths and weaknesses and knowing what's going to motivate you and keep you going. Um, so those are challenges, but maybe some tips on how to sort of get around that, uh, you know. I love that accountability piece. I think that's so important as a founder because, again, it, it does. But, yeah, having that accountability piece, and I love that you set up a board. When you say that, they're not actually directors. They're just like an accountability team yep. similar to a board meeting. Yep. I've thought about doing that for yep. years. I think that's such yep. a great idea. Yeah. Um, and the reporting element too, like actually reporting your numbers, holding yep. yourself accountable, yep. um, especially as a solo founder. Yep. Uh, I think love, you have to, in a normal relationship with say two founders, that would just happen. You'd have those discussions. One of you might be responsible for producing the documents, but you'd certainly have some sort of structure or you should mm. have some structure. But as a single founder, if you don't have those mechanics in place, you can just get lost. Um, and I get grilled, literally, like why is the margin here or why have you spent more on digital marketing? But I like it. Like I've set it up for that, um, to that feedback cycle. And I think it's probably been one of the best successes. The other thing is when you've got all your accounts in order or your management accounts that we get sent every month that we discuss, people who look in might be a bank trying to give you finance, whatever it is. They like to see that you're organized, you've got your shit together. You've got an inventory management system. I can pull up today what a product cost me. Mm. I know when something changes, I know that over time from the beginning day one, I can pull up every single order that's ever come in or gone out. And I think just having that solid foundation for saying like, maybe the couple of hundred bucks a month setting this program up might not be justified right now, but I'm thinking two years ahead, Yeah. that if I want to go and transition all my current data into another model, I want to be out for six months, there's going to, the integration is going to be such a head fuck. So this is just, I'm just going to bite the bullet bite from the day bullet, one. Yeah. And it's been, for me, the best thing that's ever happened. You mentioned self-funded, and we've talked about that a few times. Has there ever been a time where you flew a little bit too close to the sun in regards to like things got really close and itchy? Yes, number of times. Um, there's been times where I've paid the staff and not myself. Um, I pay myself like a fairly, um, you know, menial salary to keep us going and that's it. But I've put that off for a couple of weeks until um, money, more money's come in and 
the number one principle is that every single month on the 28th, all the staff get paid. Like, it's not a day late. It will always come in. There's a guarantee. I like that from guys at Lux Group at Luxury Escapes. It's like that is the critical thing. So if that means sacrificing my salary or sacrificing something else, 100% will always do that. Um, there have been a number of times where purely down to cash flow, everyone used to say cash is, cash is like the most important thing in a business and you'd be like, okay, yeah, yeah, whatever, mm-hmm. cool. And then you start running a business and you realise, shit, like I've just made all these sales, but they're going to come in in 30 days or 45 days, but I've got all these things now owing. How am I going to balance it? And there occasionally have been times where I've said, all right, well, I owe these three people money and I have to rank who's going to get it first and who's going to get it next week and who's going to get it the week after that. And the only thing I can say is that typically a lot of these businesses and players are very reasonable. If you say to them, it's going to be a week late, it's going to get paid in our next pay run on Wednesday, but it's a week late, 99 out of 100, not a problem. Um, and those are the sort of partners you want to work with because they've also seen the volumes go from nothing to you know, quite high. And I think it needs to be sort of a two-way street. But you know, that's, that's the stuff that really stresses me out, um, to be completely honest. I think I don't like disappointing people I want to pay people on time. I want to give, you know, make sure all that's happening. But the reality is sometimes it's not possible. For yeah, like, you know, for a really short amount of time, it's not possible. Yeah, it's hard. And you've got to make those decisions and you've got to make those calls. That's the toughest thing about business. And I think it's, it's a reality. And it's also, if you're not willing to make those decisions, that's what will come and yep. that's the grim reaper. That's yep. going to come and get you. And yep. you've got to make those tough calls and those hard, and they're strategic, yep. you know, at the end of the day. And, and I think that's a lot of, what you learn as you get deeper into business. Like if you haven't, you know, I'm pretty lucky I've been in business now for like 10 years, but I would say the first four of those was like, fuck, like, you know, you don't want to disappoint people, but at the end of the day, sometimes it is necessary. You don't want that to be the case, but that's just the reality of running a business. It's very dynamic. What don't people know about scaling a business? And what have you learned over the journey? You're probably about, you know, I would say, I don't know, once you got hit about two years in, it would have went to another level for you or, or somewhere around that. And you can kind of tell that story. But what, how did you guys, or what were some of the challenges you faced in terms of scalability? Yep. Um, and kind of answering that question again yep. is what don't people know? Um, so I started the business um, literally in the study. Um, of my house. Um, it's a fairly small house, but nice house, but small. Um, and launched online and, you know, the first day we got like two or three orders. And then, you know, after about six, eight weeks, we started to run a sale just because, test it out. And then it was like 200 orders. And I'm like, oh my God, like there is no space. So we're packing orders. My wife's like pregnant. We're packing orders. Like, you know, the classic sort of like story, but like just countless photos because we're like one day we'll look back at this and, and, <laughs> yeah, and yeah, laugh yeah, yeah. Um, but the reality is it's as simple as just not having space um, and working you know at home and like never leaving the nest of like home's meant to be a sacred place that you can sort of like dissociate from but it becomes your all-encompassing work and sort of personal space and so you know because we started during COVID there were a lot of places for lease so I went up on high street in Paran and I was like hey this place is for lease, I'm just gonna call, they're never gonna get a tenant. So I'm gonna call them, struck up a deal and got this like amazing place in Pran. But I could at least go out and I could get a pickpacker to come and help me and bring in stock. And you know, pallets would arrive on High Street in the morning and it was raining and we'd have to like quickly go before the cars came. So it's just like the practical side of A, needing space 
and needing to like still maintain some like healthy personal habits. Um, and then as we scaled, so you bring on more people. Um, the interesting thing for us, because I've, I've mentioned COVID a shitload, because that was how we started for two years. It was just COVID. Um, and I hired the best people, but they weren't all in Melbourne. Um, and so someone's in Sydney and someone's in the Great Ocean Road and a couple of people now are in Melbourne. But it's about then managing the growth of the business with people now because it was just you. You, could, you knew everything. You've now got to like speak to people, motivate people, give them tasks, see how things are going, address any challenges. And we're now dealing with people not just next to you, they're remote. So that was certainly a challenge about scaling. And um, to an extent, people, people management is one of the hardest things you can do, not as a founder, just as like a manager or a boss or something in general. Um, because you know the challenge that I had, and I know a lot of people have it, is you are like looking calm on the surface and like you're like a duck, you're just like paddling so fast and hard underneath to keep going at the same time you need to motivate other people to make sure that everyone's on the same board, you're creating a bit of a culture, things are going really well. Um, and that's really hard. That's really stressful and hard as you scale because you bring on more and more people and that just becomes sort of increasingly more challenging and there's now team meetings and there's all these sort of formalities that sort of go with that. Um, and then I'd say the other thing in terms of scaling is just access, like I mentioned, access to capital. Um, if you are scaling, knowing that if someone puts in an order, for a huge amount of stock, you can actually fulfill that. You can go to the manufacturer, do it, or sit on a month's worth of stock or two months worth of stock so that you can fulfill orders. The biggest challenges that we had in the early days is not having enough stock and saying no to a lot of um, customers. And that limited the growth in the first 12 months because I took the approach, like we mentioned, play it a bit safe, mitigate risk, but sometimes you can play it too cautious and then someone puts an order and you're like, sorry, it's gonna be like a month away or you're having to sell to one person who's been like more loyal to you ahead of the other person, the other person gets upset. Um, so that was certainly a challenge. Um, and then, you know, the reality is as you scale and as you become bigger, the expectations on you and the business become more. Um, you know, people forgive a product that's not sealed properly or I don't know, the lolly's a different shape or some, like something like that in the early days because you're a small startup. But as you get a bit bigger in scale, the expectations become, I need a reliable, consistent, great product every single time. Any, any variation to that, I'm gonna send your customer service an email, or I'm gonna get on Instagram and I'm gonna send you a DM and tell them about how shit you are and all this sort of stuff. So just being able to deal with that and sort of keep your manufacturers, suppliers, whoever it is you're working with, um, on the same playing field and same level and same expectations are carried through. And yeah, look, I mean, those are a shitload of challenges um, in terms of scaling. And we face what every business is, I guess, face in terms, of, in terms of scale up. The benefit for us is the product was just so excellent and people just kept wanting to reorder it. And I think that's been the saving grace. And I think just having a great product enables that scaling process to happen more fluidly. It's a good point product-led business versus marketing-led business. You're obviously in the product corner. Yes, we definitely focused on making sure we have the best product. At the same time, um, if the product's not gonna be bought by the market, then there's no point developing a product. You can have the best product in the world, but if no one wants it, then they're not gonna buy it. So it's a bit of a fusion, to be honest. Like we've always been, 
even in the early days, it was surveying people, it was reading the reviews online about incumbent products saying, oh, I like this, I like the taste of this, but I wish there was a product that didn't make me feel sick. So in that way, we're market-led. We're saying we're gonna give you what you want, but in terms of like the product and everything about the product, it's really on us to develop it, put in the right ingredients, make sure that it tastes as good as a regular confectionery product. So I think that's a bit of a dynamic one. Yeah, awesome. Mate, we're gonna dive into quick fire, which is like the last little segment. Yep. First question. Yep. One piece of advice for your younger self. Um, probably should have read the questions before so I knew, um, knew what was firing. Um, a piece of advice would be, I think just having greater understanding of the finances and like all the financial sheets, um, whether it's cash flow or balance sheet or the PL, understanding more about them in more granularity. So, um, you know, how they all piece together, understanding reconciliation, like all that sort of like stuff that you try and learn at, in accounting at school or at uni or something. Um, just having a better foundation for that would have been very helpful starting a business. Yeah, hundred percent. I, I, I think of I think this is like critical, and I think it's because basically at any one point in time you've got levers to pull, um, and if your data or the input of data and in, in this even just like a correct profit and loss, yep. understanding your gross margins, understanding your opex, yep. understanding how they fuse together, and you know the what they mean, you know having greater gross margin versus less, and yep. just that dynamic is huge. So yep. I definitely agree with that. Yep. What's one trait a founder must have for success and why? Um, <clears throat> probably resilience, I would say. Um, it's been my experience that you, you know, each day presents a very different challenge than the prior and you don't know what it is and you just gotta handle everything no matter what it is. If you gotta jump into social media to answer messages or you need to jump into zero to update P&Ls, if you need to go to the wharf to check on a container, like these are things that you might not have had experience in, but you just need to be very resilient in all the challenges that come your way. Sort of like taking in your stride, don't get flustered and overwhelmed. Like no one's gonna die, um, hopefully, um, and you know, I think it's just about being adapt adaptive to different scenarios and being resilient in general. Yeah, it's very good advice. And the last one is, is what's one piece of advice you would give someone just starting in business? If it's not the same as the resilience piece or, or any of the previous um, conversations? I think resilience is partly like a trait that you either generally have or you don't have and you can work on it in various ways. But I think in terms of advice for a person starting a business, would be just make sure that you really believe and like find value in the product that you're offering. Mm -hmm. Make sure A, that people want it. So make sure you are market led in that side and that way, but make sure that you actually back your product and care about it and develop it and tweak it. Because I've seen a number of people just because they want to get into business, develop something with, you know, the packaging might look a bit bougier or, um, there's a small other ingredient in it, but like it's not a material differentiation from what else is in the market. And then you're just competing from day one against all incumbent brands. Your marketing costs go through the roof and it's really hard. So I would say just be market led, really focus on product. It, having a great product makes your life infinitely easier. So like you're easier, not yeah. pushing shit uphill. People want it, you feel confident about it. And then I would say once you have those things, just go all in. Like. 
I'm a believer, just my personal characteristics are all in or nothing. And for me, it's like once you have the confidence that the product is good and you've got a very solid addressable market, give it everything you got. And you don't want to turn around in six months or a year and be like, fuck, I wish I could have done that. Or, you know, I should have taken that opportunity. I should have done that. So I just reckon go for it. Worst thing that happens is you learn a lot and you do something else differently next time and you'll do a better job at it. And eventually something will, will happen. It's so true. Um, I've probably been involved in two businesses now where one, you know, you, you do have a great product and a market-led product where there actually is an unmet need versus just being in a market that's saturated, it's already been fulfilled yep. to a really high level and it's harder to break through. And I think all great businesses, in my opinion, are great because at their core, they have a product that deeply meets a psychological need of a customer. Yep. Um, and that's at the core of how the business starts and grows. So absolutely love that, mate. As I said to you, I wanna, uh, I'm a massive fan of the product personally, um, you know, um, have been for a while now. And it's something that, you know, before we even started having conversations about having on the podcast, I was definitely a consumer and a fan. So really I wanna say a that. massive thank you for coming on the show, mate. Um, good luck with the rest of your journey because I do know it still is only early days. Yep. Um, and, you know, um, Fun day sweets, guys. If you haven't tried it, it is an absolute must. Get on it. Try the frogs. All right, guys. I hope you enjoyed the episode. We'll see you next week. Yeah, we'll roll, man.